Now, I suppose some of you watch television sometimes, I, I guess, maybe. And uh, when you're watching television, a few things beat a really good children's TV show. And probably opinions divide as to which truly is the best. Is it Dora the Explorer? Scooby-Doo? The little engine that could? I think I can, I think I can. I did. One well-known children's story originally written by Beatrix Potter called Squirrel Nutkin. Perhaps you know the story. Squirrel goes to an island which is ruled by a big brown owl. All the other squirrels pay homage to this owl. They bring him nuts. They bow before him. They give him respect that the owl wants. Squirrel Nutkin, however, will have none of it. He sings silly, rude songs and teases the big brown owl. Well, this goes on for some time until finally uh, the owl captures Squirrel Nutkin. It's a little bit of a daring move for children's stories at the time. Beatrix Potter was willing to suggest that Squirrel Nutkin's life was in danger until at the last moment Nutkin manages to escape. But he loses his tail. (laughs) I don't know what the moral of that story might be. Pay due respect to big brown owls, perhaps. There's a long tradition, isn't there, of children's stories that can be a little bit scary, you know, grim stories and all that sort of thing. And, and I find it interesting. I, I tell stories to my children. They, they, they like to be told stories with a little bit of an edge to them, uh, you know, in the safety of sitting on mother or father's lap. Twists and turns, sudden plot surprises, you know, dark forest, big tower, dead of night. And then rescue, and all comes out fine in the end. What if it did not? Now, as we look at Romans chapter 2, verse 5 this morning, we do so in the context of the fatherly, loving arms of the God who's revealed the gospel of rescue. And this story that we're about to tell in the context of this passage is a story of the gospel and a story of rescue if received with a soft heart. First, as we look at this verse, we need to see it in its context, so let me do that to begin with. And as we look at it in its context, let's consider what Paul is not saying. You see, the context, his storyline, the overall melodic line of the book, is the gospel of God. That's how he begins the first verse of the book. The gospel is an announcement of good news, the royal proclamation of rescue to a city that has been under siege. That's a gospel. It's God's announcement of good news to the people of the world. That's what Paul's letter to the Romans is about, this announcement of good news. And towards the end of the letter, uh, Paul tells them that this story he is... um, articulating, explaining, amplifying, applying, is for the purpose that the Roman church would be a sending base to reach all nations. As he goes on to Spain, he hopes later, and as they reach out to this strategic city of Rome. So as we receive this message, we at College Church think of Chicago land, how we could reach it, and uh, of right across the world as well. 
This is the context. Again, the context is that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's salvation to everyone who believes. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And then right before this verse, as we looked before the Mission Sunday, it's about the kindness of God, verse 4. So there's the context. And it's showing us that Paul's overarching narrative is framed by this passion for the gospel and the love and kindness of God. And that means that chapter 2, verse 5 cannot be saying these four things. One, Paul is not saying, I am disappointed with you. That's one of the songs that loops around the mind of the discouraged person. And they look at verse 5 and they think it's kind of with an agenda to say, I'm discouraged with you. I'm disappointed with you. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul cannot be saying that because of the context where he is articulating the big theme of the gospel that salvation for everyone who believes. So whatever verse 5 means, it cannot mean that. Two, Paul is not saying Christians are better than me. Perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning. You've come to church. You decided that you didn't need that extra hour of sleep after all. And you're here, and you're thinking, as I look at this verse, I finally discovered it's on page 940 in the the Bibles in front of me, and I've looked into it, and I read it and I immediately think they're saying Christians are better than other people. But that cannot be what this verse is saying because it's framed by Paul's passion for the gospel for everyone and the kindness of God for everyone. In fact, it would be deeply ironic if we misinterpreted this verse that way because right in this context here, in this particular part of Paul's letter to the Romans, the point is that we all, Jew and Greek, religious and non-religious, need Jesus So Paul cannot be saying that a certain subsection of the population named Christians are better than other people. That cannot be what he means. Three, Paul cannot be saying church people are better than me. That's similar to the other one, this kind of internal discourse, self-talk that people sing to themselves. They come to church, and maybe this, this is you. You've come here to college church this morning. You've been going to a different church for a while, but you're now you're here, and you're checking out this church, and you look at this verse, and you think, well, th- the reason why they're doing this is because they really think they're better than other churches. Well, again, it would be deeply ironic if we misinterpreted this verse that way. It cannot be what Paul is saying. cannot be because his big picture is everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs Jesus. That's the story that he's articulating, that he wants us to understand, that he wants us to believe is truly true and therefore live that way and therefore reach people with that message. So he cannot be saying church people are better than me. For Paul cannot be saying this. He cannot be saying things are bad and only going to get worse. Now, for certain evangelicals today, that's the story they think has been told by our culture. Things are bad and only going to get worse. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all a nightmare. It's not what it was like in the past. But that cannot be what Paul is saying here because his big picture story is salvation is offered to everyone who believes. Those who seek God get glory, honor, and peace. This cannot be a narrative of decline. Cannot be. Paul's big picture story is of the growth of the kingdom, not of decline. Paul cannot be saying things are bad and only going to get worse because his big picture story is of the gospel changing the whole world. 
He's given his life for that belief. He cannot be saying things are bad and they're going to get worse. No, this is good news. <laughs> so the context is important to bear in mind, otherwise we'll misinterpret what Jesus is saying. I'm constantly surprised how often this kind of thing needs to be underlined. Look, Jesus is at work. God is in his heaven. The gospel is on the march. There are millions of people coming to Christ. I was with someone just the other week, become a Christian recently, came from a non-Christian background. A couple of years ago, they became a Christian, got married, much to the bemusement of their family. You couldn't believe they weren't just living together. They got married. They thought, this is crazy. It's a funny sort of thing that parents give advice, you know, don't get married, just live with them. Well, they, you know, want to follow Jesus, so they live together. They've been married a few years, and the family's beginning to realize that actually something might be happening, that their, their, their marriage seems just fine. The gospel's at work in practical ways. We're launching a new campus on March the 22nd. The gospel is at work. I can look around this room and know there are people here who've become Christians in the last few years. The gospel is at work. And people say, well, surely, you know, what's happening in our culture is a narrative of decline. I'll tell you what's happening in the West today. This is what's happening. Nominal Christianity is dying, but the gospel is flourishing. You see, this verse, because its context, cannot mean any of those four things. Let me just give you one little other insight. In a few weeks, some of our staff team, just nine of us, are going to go to a conference it gives us a chance to learn some stuff. There are going to be 10,000 or more people there, most of whom are under 35, who are giving their lives to gospel work in this country. Christ is Lord. What Paul is not saying, therefore, cannot be any of those kind of discouraged things that go round and round in people's minds. <laughs> cannot be saying that. Well, what is Paul saying? Page 940, let me read it for us, having set the context. But because of your hard and impenitent heart... You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, this is clearly a pretty difficult verse. What does it mean? Well, in my view, Paul was simply answering three common questions about this subject. How, when, and why? How? Paul is saying that there's a division going on right now between those who receive God's gospel and those who do not. This happens every time the gospel is written, every time the gospel is preached. There is a division going on. So in verse 4, he said that God's kindness is constantly on display that we might be led to repentance. So when we sin, we all sin, even pastors, even deacons, even church members, we all sin. When we sin, we need to teach ourselves to realize that the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance, to change our minds. God's kindness, then, is not His weakness. You say, you know, I've been doing this, that, and the other, and actually I'm doing fine. Perhaps you know someone who's doing this, that, and the other, and they're doing fine, and you're thinking, well, the gospel cannot be true. It's His kindness. Intending to lead to repentance. And there's a division going on. It's his way of drawing us to him. It shines down upon us constantly. It's warm. It's like the sun shining down. 
Love of God in nature that Paul has articulated. He's revealed himself in nature primarily in Christ as that is preached through the gospel, the announcement of the good news, that warm sun shining down all the time. Martin Lloyd-Jones described that imagery that way. The sun then has two effects. It either melts or it hardens. That is, we're either like butter melting under the kindness of God. We say to ourselves, he's so kind. I don't get what I deserve. What a great gospel. How I love him. God's kindness shines upon us. Our hearts become more and more pliable, more and more soft, like butter melting in the sun. The sun shining down, but sun also, when it hits clay, it bakes it hard. That's the other response that's always going on, whether anything is written about the gospel whenever it's preached. You know, someone says, oh, God can't be real, and nothing bad has happened to me when I rebel against Him. They take His kindness in nature in their experience of the blessings of this world. They, they sit under the preaching of the gospel, the the warm sun emanating from this pulpit every Sunday, warmth and love and grace. Instead of melting like butter, they become hard like clay baked in the Middle Eastern sun. They listen to sermons on the kindness of God and they just laugh and make jokes about Jesus. Those little Christian subculture jokes. They're listening, but not really. They're hearing, but not actually. They're gradually more and more hardened under the same kindness of God. You know, what does that mean? You say, well, an elder comes to try to reach out to them to show them the right way, and they take that kindness, and they're offended, and they become hardened. They go to a college where they hear all about the Bible, and and they don't melt in the beauty of the sun shining down upon them. They get hard to the things of God instead. Now again, remember what Paul is not saying. Paul is not playing those four looping songs of the discouraged in the discouraged person's mind. He's not saying any of those four things. Christopher Ashe, in his very helpful commentary on Romans, puts it like this. Paul is not condemning shaky discipleship. He's not. But complacent and persistent hypocrisy, the pseudo-discipleship that thinks the need for repentance ended with my conversion. Well, a longer time ago, John Newton always used to say that the aim of all his preaching was to break a hard heart and heal a broken heart. So God's kindness, two responses, either softening like butter in the sun, pliable, malleable, or under the same sun, hardening like clay. How? When? Well, Paul's already said that it's partly being revealed now, uh, but uh, it's also going to be fully later on that day. God's wrath will be fully revealed on that day. The Bible, my friends, is clear that there is a day coming when those who do not submit their lives to Jesus by repentance and faith, note how repentance comes first, verse 4. Kindness leads you to repentance. Repentance and faith in His gospel will experience wrath on the day of wrath. That is a day that is to come. It's no fairy tale. It is no myth. 
It is the most terrible reality that ever man could contemplate. The Bible is very clear about this. This is what it says. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from us, us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now ask yourself this, what could that day be like when people will cry out that the rocks of the mountains would fall on them to hide them. Now, some say, well, you're preaching the gospel, Pastor. You shouldn't be talking about those things. Look at verse 16, a little later in chapter 2. It's not the way that Paul thinks. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The New Testament is pointing towards the second coming of Jesus as the Old Testament is pointing to his first coming. That's the gospel, judgment to come. Therefore, repent. And some of us will remember the evangelism explosion question, why should God let you into his heaven? Well, we need to ask that question and answer it only by repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great preacher George Whitfield used to say that you can only preach hell with tears in your eyes. Now, I have no desire to manufacture tears this morning, but I do have a desire that our hearts would be softened by the reality of this day to come. And so the, the British preacher Dick Lucas, in one video YouTube clip of him preaching, says rhetorically that people say he's trying to scare them, and then quietly he says, I wish I could could. This day is real. When? A day that is coming. How? God's kindness, either softening like butter in the sun or hardening like clay baked in the same sun. Why? It is the public declaration of God's righteousness. Now, of course, the why question is the most common of these three common questions, when, how, and why. Why would God judge us? Why would there be wrath in a day of wrath? Why cannot God just forgive? For is it not, as the French philosopher Voltaire would say, simply God's business to forgive? Is he holding a grudge? Is he malicious or perhaps malevolent? It seems so unfair to many people today. However, Paul says quite the reverse. This day is the day when God's righteous judgment is revealed. There is a day when the wrongs that have been done will be righted. There is a day when justice will be done and be seen to be done. That public declaration of His righteousness... Here's the best illustration that I can think of for it. It's the following. Imagine if you uh, knew someone who had an infestation of flies in his house. You know, he has a fly swat and he kills flies. You've got breakfast with him one morning. He tells you that he killed 49 before breakfast. <laughs> you smile and you joke about it. Who wouldn't kill a fly? I mean, most people don't feel sad when a mosquito is swatted, you know? 
Say the same friend tells you they caught a mouse in his basement last night. Not, not the new fangled kind of, you know, safe, cuddly mouse traps where you release them, they come back and eat your food or whatever again. But, uh, you know, the, the, the real kind, you know, the dead. Little tongue sticking out. Uh, you know what I mean. You've all done that, or most of you have. And again, you're not really offended, are you? You kind of, okay, right, fine. Say the friend has a dog that he had to put down with his shotgun that evening. Well, that's different. It, it has to happen sometimes, but it's pretty tough. Say he tells you about an enemy that he has, and he tells you that he has another use for that same shotgun. Say you watch the news that night, you find that person is dead, and so is his wife and his three children. And you wonder... That's one thing to kill a fly. It's a different thing to kill a child. It's one thing to hit another schoolboy in a fight during recess when you're both eight. It's another thing to punch a customer at a store. It's another thing to punch a superior officer in the army, I hear. You would go up to the President of the United States and punch him, even if you did disagree with his policy. It's one thing to trap a mouse. It's another thing to trap a person, much less his wife and children. It's another thing to do it against God. Well, you say, I haven't done anything against him at all. I live a perfectly nice life, all on my own, all for my own agenda. Yes, you do. And you're made for him. You're renting a house, it's not your own, and you're refusing to pay rent, and you're living in it, and you're making it very nice, all for your own self, and the owner is sending request after request for payment, and you refuse to repay, and eventually he sends his own son, the owner of the house, who comes to strike a deal, and on the cross, your sin kills him. You recognize the parable of Jesus, some of us? And yes, there is a day of wrath to come when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Not because he's losing his temper or getting cross, but because there is a righteousness and it is not always done in this world and it will be declared and every wrong will be righted. And that's good news if you are in Christ. What Paul was not saying, the full songs of the discouraged person. Again, Christopher Ash, very helpful little section. Again, he puts it like this. Paul speaks not to the penitent heart that lacks assurance, but to the impenitent heart that has a false assurance. Not the full songs of the discouraged. What Paul is saying, answering the three most common questions about this day. John Stott put it like this. Although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. In other words, on this matter, Paul and James in his letter in the Bible both agree. We're saved by faith. 
and the faith is to result in works. So what Paul is not saying, what Paul is saying, third and finally, what that means to us. I think here Paul is describing for us a three-dimensional picture of a godly person. Such a godly person, if you can envision it with me, has a soft heart. His faith results in fruit, and he has treasures invested in heaven. We've considered already the, the heart and the, the fruit or the works, how faith is the result in works. We've not mentioned treasures, which is one of the aspects of this three-dimensional picture that Paul is describing, that he's painting of a godly person. Let me try and pull that out for us before we apply it. You see, in verse 4, Paul describes God's kindness as riches. They are the riches of God's kindness. But then now in verse 5, he carries on that picture actually by talking what people are storing up. You see, that word is usually used of treasures, storing up treasures. For instance, Jesus talks about us storing up treasures in heaven, or in Matthew says the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. Or Paul uses this word when he says that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, treasures. Or again, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that we are to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's why the King James Version translated this word here as treasures. It's identifying a play on words that Paul was making but with the riches that come before in verse 4. So a godly person follows this three-dimensional picture of heart, fruit, treasure. Let's apply it. One, make sure our heart is open to receive the Word. See, I'm sowing, but there's a field here. It needs to be soft. We have to cultivate softness of heart towards God and His Word to come to church prepared to hear. You know, to, to be quick to repent. Now remember what Paul was not saying, the four songs of the discouraged person, what Paul is saying, answering the three most common questions, how, when, and why. But make sure we are responding with a soft heart to God. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, I am bold to assert that never was there any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw who had not his affections moved. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation while his heart remained unaffected. Never was there a saint awakened out of a cold, heartless frame without having his heart affected. He who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. We need to seek God by prayer, by reading the Bible, by humbling ourselves, by asking for the work of His Spirit in our lives, by repentance, to have a soft 
heart, melting like butter, pliable, malleable, to receive the good news of the gospel. To make sure our faith results in fruit or works. This is such a tricky communication. To get this accurate in our minds, it, it It reminds me a little of the story of the carefully planned and hugely expensive advertising campaign that Pepsi-Cola used to attempt to launch their product for the first time in China. Uh, They could not work out why sales kept falling rather than rising despite all their hard work. And then somebody pointed out that their international slogan at the time, come alive with Pepsi, when translated into Mandarin actually meant... Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. (laughs) We so easily get this wrong. Let me put it like this. Being gospel-centered does not mean doing nothing about it. As we focus on Christ, we will want to follow Christ. As we set our hearts on things above, we will want to invest in things above. As we reflect on the cross and resurrection, we will want to live lives characterized by the character of Jesus. Perhaps the best way is to be practical. Take notes on sermons. Write down carefully what it is that God is asking you to do. Keep that goal and check against it to see if it is accomplished. Am I serving? Am I repenting of this particular sin in my life? If you are a Christian, your life's mission will be to glorify Christ. So make that your mission And then have practical steps to do that this year, this week. So have a soft heart to receive the good news of the gospel. Make sure our faith results in practical fruit or works. And then the third in this three-dimensional picture of the godly man that Paul was painting here is the storing up. What are we treasuring? Are we treasuring heavenly investments or are we treasuring earthly investments? I was uh, shocked to discover this week that there is a small but significant percentage of our members who give nothing at all towards our ministry. Now, perhaps some give cash in the plate, and so it's not part of the statistic. Perhaps some are particularly hard up and course, when the plate is passed, uh, some give electronically. But we can all give something, <laughs> even if it is a widow's mite, 25 cents. Those who are particularly rich, which probably means most of us here this morning globally, Those who are particularly rich are called to abound in giving, to excel in giving, yes. But we are all called to do something. 
And we are called to invest in the one institution that will last for eternity, the church. I served in parachurch organizations. We send people to work for parachurch organizations, but in heaven they will not exist. Only the church. And so you want to prioritize your giving to the local church because that is a primary way for you to treasure up investment in heaven. Perhaps the devil has no stronger foothold in the suburbs of Chicago than in our pocketbook. You know the old joke? The last part of a person to be converted is their pocket. (laughs) Perhaps it's time for some of us to have that part converted. Now, our budget is at 94%, so this is not with an agenda. We're doing fine. But our budget should always be at 100% or slightly above, it seems to me. If we each gave our 10% of our income, we would have plenty more resources, easily do that and more, for reaching our world for Christ. (laughs) Perhaps the pocket is not actually the last part of a person to get converted, or if it is, it is only to be followed by that very last part of many many of us to get converted, which is our right foot as we drive. But this passage is not about speeding. It is about treasuring. What Paul is not saying, the four songs that loop around the discouraged, what Paul is saying, answering the three most common questions about that day, when, how, and why. What that means for us, this three-dimensional picture of a godly man against which he's comparing this description, heart, soft, melting like butter under the Word, fruit, abundant works, and treasure in heaven. Yeah, it's an overarching story of the gospel. And if our heart is soft, it's good news. And if our heart remains hard, on that day we will lose more than a tail. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would have, you would help us, you would work in us, you would soften our hearts. Father, I pray for that person who's wandered into church this morning and is looking to discover reality. And they're faced with the story of that day. 
I pray you'd help that person to see that on that day all the evil in the world, all the abuse and rape and ethnic cleansing and religious pharisaism and judgmentalism, all that will be put right. By your Spirit, would you cause that person to see their own unrighteousness too? Their judgmentalism, their anger, their sin. And so would you cause them by your Spirit to have a soft heart to you, Jesus, and to repent and put their faith in you? Would you do that for us all? Would you give us abundant fruit? We pray, Father, that uh, the gospel here, as nominal Christianity wanes, the gospel here would thrive. We pray for hearts radically transformed by the power of the gospel, living lives increasingly like yours, Jesus, a light to the nations. And if that means, Lord, that we need to treasure the right thing by putting our treasures in heaven, would you help us to do so and to see the wonderful life that is truly life on offer, the freedom and passion and glory and immortality and love and peace that comes as we abound in good works by your Spirit bearing abundant fruit. Cause us to forgive each other, Lord Jesus, to have mercy on each other as you have had mercy on us, and to live lives transformed by the gospel. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.